Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. It's my pleasure tonight to introduce David Sheff, who was born in Boston but actually graduated from Cal. And he was just telling me that his son was born here, so we're welcoming him back home tonight. Um, he and his wife, Karen Barber, who is an artist and illustrator and children's book author, um, live in Marin, where they've raised their children. I actually first encountered David's work in the 90s when I read with immense pleasure and interest his book, Game Over, which is about Nintendo's ruthless campaign to dominate the interactive entertainment industry. The subtitle, How Nintendo Zapped an American Industry, Captured Your Dollars, and Enslaved Your Children, gives you some idea of the immense stakes this particular game was played for. David's account of the personalities and the tactics involved is vivid and as suspenseful as a thriller, especially if you're a computer and gaming geek like me. Um, The New York Times reviewer described it almost as hypnotic as a successful video game. And if you're interested in computing and or games and or narrative in the modern age, you should read this book. It's seminal. It's one of the best things I've read about in the field. Um, David is also the author of China Dawn, an account of the business and cultural revolution in China set off by the internet, and of All We Are Saying, which is a book-length account of the last major interview given by John Lennon, along with Yoko Ono. And there's a whole fantastic story about how David interviewed him um, uh, literally days before he was shot and then hung on to the 24 hours of tapes something like that, um, and then actually release it as a book. And I believe it's just been released as an e-book. So if any of you are e-book readers, you will find it on your Kindle or Nook or whatever it is. Um, He has written for the New York Times Magazine, Wired, Playboy, Fortune, Rolling Stone, outside the Los Angeles Times Magazine, Esquire, and Observer Magazine in England, Foreign Literature in Russia, and uh, Playboy in Japan. He also wrote an award-winning documentary about John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath and a radio special about Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, both for National Public Radio. He wrote and edited Heart Play, Unfinished Dialogue, which won a Grammy Award nomination for Best Spoken Word Recording of 1984. In 2005, David published an article in the New York Times Magazine about his realization that his son, Nick, Once an athletic, sensitive boy interested in literature and theater had relapsed into using crystal meth. The response from the readers of the magazine was passionate and enormous, and thankfully, publishers noticed. Both David and Nick have since written books about their experiences. I devoured David's book, Beautiful Boy, in a really strange state of pleasure and pain. Pleasure because it's beautifully, engagingly written, because it's full of emotion and pathos, but is never sentimental, And pain, I think, because I've recently become a father. My wife and I have a two-year-old and a three-month-old. Early in the book, David writes about, uh, I'm quoting now, a beautiful emotion, a bewildering emotion that I recognized for the first time back when Nick was born. Along with the joy of parenthood, with every child comes a piercing vulnerability. It is at once sublime and terrifying, end quote. David's almost unbearably vivid description of watching a child slide into a steady destruction of the self is exactly that, sublime and terrifying. He catches the exhilaration of each rush of hope with every trip to rehab and the despair which comes with every relapse. 
the toll that addiction takes on the addict and the family becomes very real to the reader, as does the exhaustion that gradually sets in. And yet, it is finally a life-affirming and hopeful book in that it makes no easy promises about recovery, but shows you that a struggle born out of love is always possible and always worthwhile. The book was a New York Times number one bestseller, was named the best nonfiction book of 2008 by Entertainment Weekly, and won the 2009 Barnes and Noble Discovery Award. Also in 2009, David was included in Time Magazine's list of the world's most influential people. Uh, please join me in welcoming David Chef. Yeah, well, thank you, Vikram. That was uh, that was so nice. A little overwhelming. Um, the joke about the Time Magazine Award is that um, says that something about being influential in the world, and I have absolutely no influence whatsoever in my family with my children. <laughs> so to me, it's, you know, it's 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 kind of ironic. Um, I uh, yeah, I'm here after writing um, this book about my son. Um, who became actually he went to Berkeley um, for all of uh, three months. Uh, when I remember when we dropped him off, um, he was lived. He he was assigned to uh, the dorm that sort of looks like an old castle that got bowls. Yes, and I remember um, his younger brother, my my younger son Jasper. When we dropped Nick off, was like, oh my god, Nick, you get to live in a castle. Um, Within, oh, you know, Nick was all excited uh, enrolling. He came back after his first week or so talking about his classes. Um, and then a few weeks later, actually it was, I, I talked to him probably over the first few, few weeks, but a few weeks after that, I got a call from one of his roommates um, who said that they hadn't seen him. Uh, I guess the guy called the Berkeley security, and they ended up calling the police where we live, and a police officer came to our house. We filed a missing persons report. And um, that was, uh, you know, one of the many times when we were in a, just a, a situation that every parent dreads but can't imagine until, you know, you've been there. Um, when Nick first became addicted and we started to... Um, become educated about addiction, um, the counselors and the therapists and the, uh, the uh, other people who've been through this talked talk to us about this being a family disease. Um, and when I heard that, I didn't understand what that meant. I thought, you know, Nick was the one who was addicted and he's the one who needed help. But I very quickly learned that that wasn't true because Nick wasn't, his addiction wasn't just destroying him, it was destroying me. Uh, in our entire family. Um, I couldn't function. I couldn't work. Um, I write about becoming addicted to his addiction. I was out of my mind with worry in a state of unrelenting, immobilizing panic, and I justified it. I thought, how can a parent not be consumed by a child's life-or-death struggle? Uh, Nick was mainlining drugs. As I wrote in my book, he was shooting poison into his arms, arms that not that long ago threw baseballs and built Lego castles, arms that wrapped around my neck when I carried his sleepy body in from the car at night. How could a parent fail to be consumed with worry when their child's on the streets, homeless, selling drugs, stealing, breaking into our home and our friends' homes, and using every drug known to man, slowly dying? Um, how did it start, and how does it start for any of our kids? 
I think parents like me are hardwired for denial and we ignore what's happening in front of our eyes, explaining it away and justifying it and making excuses. I was in denial about Nick's drug use, I thought, and I really genuinely believe that this could never, ever happen to us, not to my son. He was born in Berkeley at Alta Bates Hospital. Of course, as his father, I'm prejudiced, but he was a lovely child. He was the light of my life. He was joyful and bright-eyed, and he was funny, and he was, it was, I became consumed with fatherhood. Um, we spent a lot of time at uh, on Tilden Park and um, Cordonesis on the big slide. Um, Nick had his own style. Uh, when, he bec- um, when he started kindergarten, um, there was a period of time when he would only wear tights. And when the kids would tease him and say, only girls wear tights, he responded, uh-uh, Superman wears tights. And another time uh, in school, he was asked to write about himself, you know, where he was from, his family, and um, whether he lived in a house or apartment. And they asked what his color was, and he wrote down he was beige. (laughs) Um, We parents look to external barometers to tell us how our kids are doing, and according to those, as Nick was growing up, he was doing great. He had friends, he was a good student. He was an athlete, he was on the varsity swim team and water polo team in high school, and he was a journalist on the school newspaper. But also, in high school, he began using drugs, uh, initially smoking pot. When I found out, I took it seriously. I wasn't naive about drugs. I'd used many. And when I was using, I brushed aside the warnings from my parents and teachers and whomever else it was as hysteria and scare tactics. And I was certainly, uh, I was certain that nothing could happen bad to me. Um, Frankly, I loved drugs during those years. They helped me feel more and feel less, both of which had the same function. It wasn't, maybe at first it was about pleasure, but soon it wasn't about pleasure. Hi, I didn't have to feel what was going on in my life. I think many adolescents are like I was, using drugs to push aside or numb out feelings that come with being a teenager. Excitement about growing up, but growing up also can be overwhelming. On one hand, um, it's parties and friends and looking forward to the future, and at the other hand, there's intense stress, maybe even more stress now at a time when kids are expected to have their college resumes filled out by the time they're 12. Um, So when I got high, originally the stress, all the other insecurities I felt were replaced, at least first, by a sense of euphoria and confidence and connection, all the things that I craved. So I understood the pull to use. I understood the seduction, but I also understood the danger. Um, My drug use took a high toll, one that I never anticipated. Um, I'm convinced that my ongoing use contributed to the depression I've I've suffered or I've struggled with as an adult. I think it set me up, or it was part of the reason I had years of disastrous relationships in which I was hurt and hurt others. Um, for decades afterwards, I tried to catch up because I spent my, teenager, my teenage years and early 20s high. Um, a researcher explained to me, drugs shield children from dealing with reality and mastering developmental tasks crucial to their future. The skills they lacked that left them vulnerable to drug abuse in the first place are the very ones that are stunted by drugs. They'll have difficulty establishing a clear sense of identity mastering intellectual skills, and learning self-control. The adolescent period is when individuals are supposed to make the transition from childhood to adulthood, 
Drugs can impair a person so they're unprepared for adult roles. They'll chronologically mature while remaining emotional adolescents. And for a long time, that was me. And it was worse for people I knew. I have friends who burned out, whose lives were destroyed forever, who wound up debilitated in prison, or like my dear friend who lived with me for a year when I lived in Berkeley, uh, overdosed and died. So when I caught Nick with pot, I did what I could. I grounded him, I talked to him, I warned him, I met with his teachers and a counselor, and basically they told me what I wanted to hear. Nick's a great kid, he's engaged, he has friends, drugs are out there, kids experiment, Nick will be fine. But he wasn't. His use escalated, um, and I continued to deny that we were in trouble, continued to make excuses and to rationalize and to, he was experimenting, it's a rite of passage, he's getting ready. He told me he was ready to get it. This was before he started here. And he said, I'm starting in the fall. Uh, I'm going to be very serious as a student. Uh, I'm just going to party a bit. And don't worry, I won't make any mistakes. I'm careful. Um, I believed him because I wanted to until one night he disappeared. Um, it was the first time. It was incomprehensible. He was supposed to be home at 11. Then it was midnight. Then it was 2 in the morning. Then it was 4. I did what parents do when we don't know where our children are. I imagined horrific scenarios. I called his friends, his friends' parents, the police, to see if there'd been an accident. I called hospital emergency rooms. No one had seen him. It continued for a day, a night, another, another. Where was my son? I made the calls again. I called the ER. I called the police. One time an officer asked me, Mr. Chef, have you tried the morgue? I did. There was no sign of him. And finally, he did call. This was after two weeks, and he sounded terrible, and he told me where he was, and I went to get him. He was emaciated and bruised and sallow. He was trembling. When I helped him up, he was so frail that it felt as if he would break in two. My denial vanished. Nick was in serious trouble, and he needed help. I had no idea what kind. And that's when I got my first glimpse into what we call in America an addiction and mental health care system. At the time, I was out of my mind with worry. I had to navigate an unnavigable system. I had to make the most important decision of my life without even knowing where to begin. When families are broadsided by addiction, we're unsure where to turn. There's no accepted course to follow. We attempt to consult specialists, but reliable ones are difficult to find. And ones, they, um, and, and ones we do find offer contradictory advice. People rely on the recommendations of teachers and friends and clergy and family and friends of friends. I was told to kick him out. Some said kicking him out, letting him fall, letting him hit bottom was the only thing that would help him. I was told to send him to boot camp, outward bound, psychotherapy, wilderness programs, a vitamin therapy regime, hypnotism, a range of rehabs, inpatient, outpatient, therapeutic boarding schools, tough love camps, religious retreats, even a reprogramming center in Czechoslovakia. The more opinions I got, the more bewildered I became. Desperate people are at the mercy of charlatans, rip-off artists, people uneducated in treatment. There are standards and licensing requirements for laundries and coffee shops, but not for rehabs. Anyone can open one. There's no prerequisite of professional degrees or credentials for staff. Some programs promise 90%, even 100% success rates. One program promised to drain drugs from an addict system and end dependency in seven days for $15,000. Some programs rely on threats and harsh and humiliating punishments. 
In the book, I described a rehab that had been recommended for Nick. I almost sent him there at one point until at the last minute I learned that a child in the program who'd broken the rules was forced to make amends by working for a day outside in the freezing weather, cutting the grass with scissors. I was trying to decide what to do. And in the meantime, my life didn't stop. I had to try to work and to meet my other responsibilities. I tried, most of all, along with my wife Karen, to take care of our littler children, Jasper and Daisy. Not only were they confused and intensely worried about their big brother, but they were also traumatized because their parents were. Just this year, Daisy, who's 14, wrote about her childhood for an assignment in school. I was born, she wrote, into a latticework of lovely oceans and hunched, shadowed vampires tangled together in an inseparable knot. Most of what I remember about being little is marvelous, with my two wise brothers carrying me upon their shoulders. Of Nick, she writes, he told Jasper and me stories about an English detective named P.J. Fumblebumble, who drinks lots of tea and is exceptionally clever and funny. But then, as she wrote, everything sort of flipped over. Nick was tired and slinking, and then he was gone. My strong pillar parents, my pillar parents crumpled. I was overwhelmed and confused, trying to protect them, and in the meantime, trying to find help for Nick. But my efforts failed or became moot because Nick grabbed his backpack, threw in some clothes, and left again. Addiction is a progressive disease, I've learned, um, which means it's not, if it's not being treated, it gets worse. And things got progressively worse for Nick. Every time I thought he couldn't get into more dangerous situations, that his debilitation couldn't get worse, it did. Soon it got to the point when he showed up again that I was adamant and I refused to help him in any other way than to send him to a program. And finally, he agreed, kicking and screaming literally. Dropping him off was the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life. This is hell, I thought, but I'll pick him up in 28 days when the program ended and he'll be cured. We move on from the slight detour in his life, in our family's lives, life, sorry, and Nick will head off to college as planned. That's not what happened. Sometimes treatment works the first time. Someone stays sober forever, but often it doesn't. Nick ended up in the program in San Francisco. He went into another program. Then he was sober three months. Stupidly, um, I agreed that uh, he wanted to start school here, and he did. Uh, and as I said, a few months later, um, he disappeared again. When he, when he disappeared again and again, I was devastated. In fact, I was devastated for the next five years, and it did not get easier over time. His terrible relapses would be interrupted by new catastrophes that led him back into treatment. I'd be hopeful, and then he'd relapse, and I'd be into a new panic. I kept those desperate calls going in the middle of the night, and I got some too. The 3 a.m. telephone call that parents dread there was a warrant out for Nick's arrest. He was beat up, left for dead. He ended up in an emergency room more than once. One time a doctor called and said, Mr. Chef, we have your son. We're not sure if he'll make it. You'd better get down here. Um, after about seven times in treatment, he was doing much better. He celebrated his year anniversary sober, which seemed like a miracle. Then he made it to 18 months, and we were so hopeful. 
and then you disappeared again. This is from my book. In the, it's morning of the third day since Nick disappeared. After French toast, Daisy and Jasper play in their rooms for a while, and then, though it's drizzling, run outside. By, that time, by the time I corral them, we're running late. We'd better get them going or they'll be late for school. They race through the house, collecting homework and cleats, stuffing them into their backpacks. Karen takes on Daisy's tangled braids and then heads out to drive them to school. When they're gone, I'm left to fall apart again. Where is Nick? I'll not accept the most likely answer that he's relapsed. He's been doing so well. It's not perfect, but he has good friends and a good job. He's biking and writing. He attends AA meetings. Overall, he seems enthusiastic about his life. I know sometimes he's lonely, but who isn't? Sometimes he's down, but who isn't? Sometimes he feels overwhelmed, but who doesn't? I try to keep it together, not to lose it, to appear all right in front of Jasper and Daisy. They're only seven and nine. Karen and I don't want to tell them about Nick until we know more, but we'll have to say something soon. We can't for much longer conceal the anguish and hysteria that once again is taking over our home. When I'm alone, however, I do lose it. Tears come at unexpected moments for no obvious reason, and they pour forth with ferocity. They scare the hell out of me. It scares the hell out of me to be so lost and helpless and out of control. Utter despondency is followed by a frantic impulse to do something, to do anything. I know better, but I'm desperate to find him. When Karen hears my plan, she shakes her head. It won't help to find him if he doesn't want to be found, she says. She looks at me concern and exasperation and sorrow. You'll just be disappointed, she says. I know. And I don't say anything more, even as my brain calculates. It won't help to find him if he doesn't want to be found, but he could die, and then it'll be too late. At dawn the next morning, Karen wakes up and finds me in the living room, staring into dim flames in the fireplace, and she finally succumbs. Go ahead, she says. Look for him. It can't hurt. Go on. Maybe you'll feel better for trying. So on this cool, overcast morning, knowing that I'm on a fool's errand, I drive across the Golden Gate Bridge with plans to scour San Francisco's neighborhoods where I suspect that he might show up. After driving aimlessly through the mission, I cross town, park on Ashbury, and walk down Haight Street. Runaways, dyed hair tattooed, tie-dyed, track marks stoned, hang out in doorways. If you subscribe to the idea that addiction is a disease, it's startling to see how many of these children paranoid, anxious, bruised, tremulous, withered, in some cases psychotic and slowly dying. We'd never allow such a scene if these kids had any other disease. They'd be in a hospital, not on the street. Of course, I don't find him. Driving home, I torment myself with the same unanswerable questions. What did I do wrong? Did I spoil him? Was I too lenient? Did I give him too little attention, too much attention? If only my, I myself had never used drugs, if only his mother and I had stayed together, if only, if only, if only. Guilt and self-blame and regret may serve a function as a turbocharger of conscience, but in excess they're useless and incapacitating, yet I cannot silence them. Where is my son? We hear nothing for more, uh, for another week, another fortnight. Then he sends me an email. My, inil- my initial reaction is relief. He's alive, at least semi-coherent and mobile, if only enough to get to a public library in order to use a computer. Thank God for libraries. 
for most of us, or often we think of them about research, entertainment, edification, but also they're a lifeline for many people. And in his note, Nick asked for help. He asked me for some money so he didn't have to live on the streets, and I write back and told him that I would help him return to treatment, but that was all. I wasn't parroting any Al-Anon tough love script, nor had I become calloused. It's just that bailing him out, paying his debts, his debts, dragging him to shrinks and counselors and scraping him off the streets, it had been futile. Methamphetamine is impervious. I've always assumed that vigilance and love would guarantee a decent life for my children, but I've learned that they aren't enough. In family sessions in rehabs and the many 12-step meetings I attended, I'd hear a lot of cliches, one of them, let go, you have to let go. I never understood what they meant. I'd hear that and think, what are you talking about? I'll never let go of my son. How can a parent let go of a child? I'll never let go of Nick. Nick was on the streets. I'm desperate to know where he is, desperate, desperate to know if he's alive or dead. And then he calls again. Dad, I'm in trouble. I need help. It's the first time I've heard his voice now, six weeks. How many times had I gone to get him, to believe him when he said he wanted to stop and would do it on his own? I'd let him come home to sleep it off. I'd trust his promises and believe his remorse. Mostly, I'd be so worried that I'd do anything to return him to safety, even if it was a short-lived respite. But it hadn't worked. I'd learned by then that it wasn't because Nick had no willpower. It wasn't because he didn't, it wasn't because he wanted to stop. I'm sorry, he didn't, it wasn't because he wanted to continue using. He couldn't stop. He couldn't stop because he was ill. He was seriously ill. And when finally I grasped what they'd been telling me, that addiction is a disease, a mental illness, when finally it sunk in, I knew what to do because we know what to do when we or someone we love is seriously ill. We need to get them into treatment the best we can find and afford. Even if it takes multiple rounds of treatment, we would do whatever we could to get them the help they need. And so when Nick begged me to help him, pled with me, sobbed, against every parental instinct I said, I'll come get you and help you get back into treatment. I'll come pick you up and drive you there. He was annoyed and angry. I'm not going back, he said. I've been there, done that. Those places don't work for me. I messed up, but I'm going to stop on my own. I took a breath. I said, Nick, I love you so much. Take care of yourself, please. Call me if you'd like getting help and you're willing to go into treatment, and I hung up. That's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to go where he was and find him and hold on to him. Instead, I hung up and I wept. I didn't know what would happen next. I didn't know if he would make it another day, another hour. I didn't know if I would ever see him again. But I did know what they meant when they said I had to let go. I didn't have to let go of my son. I never could and I never would. But I had to let go of the fantasy, the illusion, the desperate need of a father to be able to decide for my son if he was going to use or stop. If he, I had to let go of the fantasy that I could decide for him if he was going to choose to live or to die. It's been about five years since then. Nick was here. We spent a week together visiting. When we're together, 
when I look at him, when we talk on the phone, when I get a funny text message from him, I never for a minute forget how close I came to losing him. I'm reminded almost every day when I hear from a parent or brother or sister or husband or partner or wife, whoever it is, who tells me that their loved one didn't make it. You have no idea how many. Three this week. Or maybe they haven't seen their son or daughter in months or years and they have no idea whether they're alive or dead. When I meet these brave, brave people, I repeatedly ask myself, why is Nick here and these families had to bury their child? Like with every other serious, potentially terminal illness, with this one, sometimes people die. There's no reason other than luck that I have my son. As bad as things got for us, we were the lucky ones. Um, Every day since my book was published, I hear from people, I get letters, I get emails. Their lives have been destroyed or nearly destroyed by drugs, and the stories often include, again, as bad as things got for us, and I couldn't imagine that they would get worse, they do. A man that called me last night told me that his son is in Alta Bates, um, unconscious on life support. He drank a bottle of Robitussin DMX and took some pills that didn't know what they were, and he's in a coma. I hear tragic story after tragic story, but I also hear stories that are hopeful. People in recovery, celebrating days, weeks, months, years, sober. For these people, often it's not only that they survive, but their lives are better than they've ever been. They discover something that was probably unimaginable, that they no longer have to suffer in the ways they've suffered. Life for everyone is difficult with ups and downs, but treatment allows the afflicted to move forward and have full, rewarding, and wonderful lives better than they ever thought possible with healthy relationships and joy. And it's not only addicts who can heal. So can people who've been traumatized by a loved one's illness. It takes time and it takes hard work. But after time and hard work, our family is stronger than ever. And because of Nick's hard work in recovery, I have my son back. And it's not only that he's back, he's growing up to be one of the most extraordinary people I know. I think our whole family now lives in a slightly altered world one that contains sadness and worry, but is also slightly brighter, richer, and more vivid than it ever has been. Sometimes it's so stunning and so wonderful that I well up for tears for it, and I embrace it all on one hand, the uncertain future, the possibility of calamity, the chance that my children will be harmed, car accidents, illnesses, the chance that Nick could relapse, a million other catastrophes. And on the other hand, compassion, hope, joy, and love. Uh, I uh, would love to answer any questions you have or hear anything you have to say about this. Um, The one thing I will say is that um, um, Nick um, now is, I don't even, there was a time when I count not only the years, but the, and not only the months, but the weeks or the days or even the hours of his sobriety, but he's been sober for about five years. Um, and he doesn't claim that life is easy, as I was saying. Since I wrote my book and since he wrote a book 
reflecting his own experience. Um, he was diagnosed uh, with bipolar disorder. Um, doctors have told us that people with bipolar disorder, especially teenagers, often gravitate specifically to methamphetamine because methamphetamine is in the same family of some of the drugs that actually treat bipolar disorder. Um, if Nick had been diagnosed when he was younger, who knows, you know, would it have stopped things from descending as far as they did? Now he works with a psychiatrist. He's on medication. Uh, and uh, we look back at those times, and it's, it's sort of like, on one hand, it's never far from my emotional uh, state ever. On the other hand, it almost seems as if it happened to someone else. It's so hard to realize that we were there and that Nick was where he was. Um, anyway, does anyone have any questions? Yes, sir. Uh, you mentioned that laundromats and someone else uh, are regulated and require certification of any kind. Rehab programs don't. Is there any way that uh, anyone can change that? Are there any resources available to complain and get change? There is a movement to change that. Um, one of the things that happened under President Obama that is extraordinary, um, up until now, the people who've been put in, rung, in charge of the drug, they used to call it the drug czar, now they call it something else, but they've always been um, from law enforcement. This time, they have a man who, actually the two top guys have, been, um, have experience in this field. One of the, actually the, the number two guy um, lost his son, uh, to alcohol and drugs last year. Um, but they understand you know, the problem. And they are pushing for changes. Um, there was a provision in the new healthcare stuff that passed um, in that whole package that uh, gives money to look at this, to try to f establish um, protocols, you know, evidence-based treatments that work, uh, licensing. But for the moment, it's just really hard. Um, I. Um, I know a lot. I've, you know, I've done a lot of research, and it took, I mean, as a reporter, I knew how to do research, and it still was hard. Um, this gentleman whose son died uh, knows probably more about drugs and addiction than anyone in the world, or as much as anyone in the world. And when we talked, you know, it was all theoretical. He said he didn't know what to do for his son. Um, there are, so people are working on standards. There's also another group that's working on a referral agency. So, you know, if I called them up or went online, I would get places that have um, at least some of the things that we know is useful. You know, some places you go and there's no one with any training whatsoever. I mean, Nick went into places where um, the counselors were, you know, the sweetest, gentlest people in the world, but their only credentials for being there is that they were in sobriety. They were, you know, 10 years sober or something like that. Um, so, you know, there are things to ask for and to, you know, there, there's a way. To, so they'll find places where um, there's psychological assessment, and there are psychiatrists on staff, and patients you know, see them, and then there are some of the proven kinds of behavioral therapies and things like that. But we have a long way to go. What's the name of the person you referred to? Tom, Tom, Tom McClellan. And he is, um, uh, I can't remember the title for some reason, but anyway, he's, he's an extraordinary person. He used to run a, um, one of the most uh, sophisticated uh, uh, research centers for, about drug addiction, and I think it was in Pennsylvania. about the, um, the history of drugs and our generation as kids compared to 
your generation or even 30s and 40s um, and the pharmaceutical industry and how that really changed everything? Well, um, in the 30s and 40s, you know, the the big drug problem. I mean, there were people who used heroin, and there was a big, um, there was some, you know, but the big drug was alcohol. Um, did tr- I, I write a whole section about the history of meth. Like, it was developed in Japan by um, scientists working with the military. The idea is that they could keep soldiers up for days. Um, the United States Army ended up using it as well. Um, one of the things that has changed and um, that's dramatic, a dramatic change since I was a kid is, um, I mean, as I said, I used many drugs. Um, but there has been research that shows that I think the pot, the, the, we, you know, the marijuana that kids are smoking now is about 30 times stronger than the pot I was smoking. Um, and, um, you know, I, I knew people who died, and so the idea that kids are dying now is nothing new. But um, a boy, um, I think it was, was it Friday or Monday, this, just the beginning of this week, um, was only an eighth grader, and he, he, um, he killed himself. And uh, I talked to one of his parents, and he was, um, you know, he was, he was high, and he was using. Um, the big, the big, the fastest growing drug problem is, uh, in America, is directly related to the pharmaceutical companies. Um, the guy I know um, was hurt, hurt uh, he lives in Marin, he hurt his leg, he went into the hospital. Um, they patched him up and the doctor gave him a prescription for, I don't know, 30 or 40, whatever it was, Oxycontin. You know, he, he needed them for about two days, um, but he took them until the bottle was empty and then he, and then he needed more. And, um, you know, Oxycontin, when crushed, basically it's an opiate, it's related to heroin. A lot of times, you know, people start with Oxycontin, they get addicted to Oxycontin. Sometimes they move on to using heroin. Um, so, anyway, pharmaceutical drugs, I mean, prescription drugs is the biggest, is the fastest growing drug problem in America. These kids um, that are drinking cough syrup, they're going to these parties and they grab whatever medications they can find in their parents' medicine chest, they put them in a bowl, they sort of stir them up. Um, and take a few pills, and, you know, um, they don't know what they're taking. Um, It's confusing because when they survey kids, because they're prescription drugs, they think they're safer. Um, And um, I I, I don't know what else to say. It's, 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 you know, it's the numbers... The combinations of drugs, the potency of the drugs, it's, it's, it's worse. Uh, than, you know, I, I've, I've got a section in a new book that I'm writing that really tracks all this stuff. And if you look at some of the official statistics that have come out um, in the past, you know, it's, they're always talking about how successful the war on drugs is. You know, things are either plateaued or else we're winning. It's, you know, the drug use is going down. But um, those are surveys that have been completely discredited by the people in the field that I've spoken to. Um, they're done by, you know, polls and, you know, calling people up. And, you know, people aren't going to tell you if they're sh- shooting math or probably. Um, and um, anyway, the real statistics is that it's growing. And I wonder about part of it is, I think, that, you know, the availability 
Um, but I do think that there may be something else about just escalating stress and escalating alienation and um, you know, the problems with families, the economy puts more stress on families and on kids. Um, you, know, the, you can predict, or at least I can't predict, but researchers can predict a child who's more likely to try drugs in the first place, to use them to have escalating problems than to become addicted. And the risk factors are, some of them are completely out of anyone's control. Um, genetics is a big risk factor. Um, other risk factors are divorce, other kinds of trauma, stress, uh, abuse, um, and uh, poverty, um, education level. I mean, a lot of the things, and you start to push these things together, uh, put these things together, um, and, um, you know, I guess the point is it's not new, but it's... I think there's more reason for people to use, and they are using more drugs, stronger drugs, more combinations of drugs, younger. Um, given your experience now, looking back, has your attitude towards drug policy and like possibly legalization changed, not knowing what you know now? And uh, what's your opinion on legalizing marijuana? Um, I've had a, I've really been confused about legalizing marijuana. Um, I think that. I actually, if, you know, I, I support it, but with, I feel I'm very ambivalent about it. And the reason is, um, the reason I support it is because I feel that, you know, there's an enormous amount of crime around drugs. Right now, um, I've gone to treatment centers where kids, a lot of teen, I mean, adolescent treatment centers where most of the kids are there because of only marijuana. People think you can't get addicted to pot. Well, you can um, these kids are there. They don't go to you don't go to rehab unless you're really, really having trouble. Your real your life is really messed up, so you can get addicted to marijuana. Um, it's but it's um, but I've also been to uh, adolescent detention centers, to jails, you know, um, where kids are there, busted for pot, and in the treatment centers they're being treated. In jail they're not. Mostly, sometimes they are. Um, so I'd rather have people who have problems, you know, get the help that they need. Um, the reason I worry about it, I guess the only, uh, the other thing I was going to say is that I don't think the, the illegality of drugs makes much of a difference on supply. Nick says that when he was in high school, it was a lot easier to get pot than it would, was to get alcohol. So I don't see what, that is having a real um, big impact on, on lowering use. Um, I like the idea of taxing it because, and, and especially if the money was to go to treatment. Um, and uh, the only thing I worry about, the only other side about it, the only other problem I have with it is that I think maybe in the short term especially it might give a message to kids mostly, but just out there that, you know, the, the, the returns are in, marijuana is safe, go for it, you know. And... Um, you know, a lot of people smoke pot and they're fine, and uh, at least relatively fine. But um, a lot of people aren't. Um, when I was growing up, you know, there was a lot. Every time people gave us warnings about pot, um, we would sort of roll our eyes and think they were trying to scare us, and it was all you know, hy hysteria. Um, you know, marijuana is a gateway drug. Well, you know, is marijuana a gateway drug? Well, the truth is that everyone who smokes pot is not going to start shooting heroin. But I've never met anybody who started who is shooting heroin or using meth or using any other drug who didn't start smoking pot. So it often is a gateway drug. So I guess my hope is that, you know, it's illegal, that it's legalized, 
but we do the right thing, which is to spend a lot of money on education, prevention, and then treatment for people who end up having problems. I wonder um, how you made the decision to share this story and how, you know, I imagine you discussed it with the family. And well, I, um, you know, I'm a writer, and one of the ways I survived those five years was um, I was up at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, and the way to get through the night for me oftentimes was just sitting there and writing and writing and writing and writing and writing um, without any intention of publishing anything. It was just a way to survive. It was a way, I think, always that it's almost as if there's something physically inside my head, and writing is, you probably know, it's, uh, it sort of pours out, and there's some relief. Um, but... Um, Nick was sober for a couple years the last time, or not, not the last time, but uh, after the time I, uh, anyway, it's all confusing dates. But anyway, he was sober for a couple years. Um, I talked to one of my editors at the New York Times. She had sort of followed what had happened and said to me, you know, this is a story that should be told. Um, I was really, really conflicted. On one hand, I thought it was a story that should be told because I know that there are a lot of other people out there like me who, you know, think that we're the first ever to go through this, to have no idea how to think about it, how to process it, you know, if it's our fault, what to do. Um, we feel completely alone. And there is this enormous shame that comes with it, and there's this enormous guilt. And, um, and we don't tell people. I didn't tell anybody for a really long time because I didn't want them to think badly about Nick. And I didn't want them to think badly about me. You know, what does it mean about me that my son's addicted to drugs? Um, so... Um, so I thought it would be useful. And the other thing that was relevant then is um, now, you know, we know about methamphetamine. It's been on the front pages of newspapers for a long time. But at that time, um, there had been a lot of conversation about crack and heroin and other drugs, but there was nothing about meth. In fact, Nick said he'd never even heard about, of meth. Uh, it was a drug that was mostly in rural America and sort of motorcycle gangs made it and stuff like that. But it wasn't something that our kids, you know, sort of were taking. And Nick, you know, was always sort of on the cutting edge of whatever was coming along, you know, Nintendo when he was little. Um, and he was on the cutting edge of, 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 of using meth. And so I did a lot of research about meth in particular and the specific toxicity of that drug. I mean, it is, you know, research has told me that it, the hardest drug to recover from, it does the most damage uh, to the neurological system is methamphetamine and, and crack. So um, anyway, so there seemed to be an important story there too, but um, I was also really afraid about exposing our family and exposing Nick uh, most of all. Um, and so it was only you know, through a lot of conversations. Um, and even when we decided, everybody was very supportive. Nick was supportive from the beginning. Um, you know, they have this um, cliche, another cliche from the 12 steps or... Um, you know, you're as sick as your secrets. And Nick really embraced that, the idea that, you know, the more you're holding inside and pretending you're someone who you aren't, the more um, in trouble you are and the more drugs, you know, sort of can offer a solution. So he really, I mean, obviously he wrote a book about it. He came out, he made the decision very, very early um, that it was important for his recovery never to forget that this happened to him to, 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 and he also thought, you know, he also thought it was useful, and it has been useful. I've heard from so many people who tell me either their, you know, their children, or they themselves, or their students, if it's a teacher, have read Nick's book and gone into recovery because of it. Um, 
But I still was worried, and I'd still spend a lot of sleepless nights, and I insisted that everyone in my family read the drafts of the article before it was published. My editors were very, very, very sympathetic, and even if it would have been the last second before it closed, if I would have called them up and said, you know, asked them not to publish it, they wouldn't have. And then the book was an extension of that, the same kinds of conversations. Um, my, I drove my editor crazy. There were many times when I called him up and said, forget it, we can't do it. I guess can't do it. Um, so, anyway. Yes. As an author, do you feel like you and your son's books help to address uh, a deficiency in narrative literature dealing with the subject, or do you feel like it may be falling under an established tradition that it uh, may help to continue picking up uh, books like Goas Gallus and uh, pre-existing works? Do you feel like um, beautiful, excuse me, beautiful boy uh, is sort of an heir to something in that nature? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of really good books about addiction and alcoholism and recovery. Um, Dryas Gallus is, is a really good book. And um, I guess, um, you know, all one of the interesting things is when you experience this and you read those books is you realize that all stories about addiction have some things in common, and yet everyone is inc very, very unique because every person is unique and every family is unique. Um, I think one of the things that I have been told is that though there are a lot of memoirs about addiction from addicts you know, who are in recovery, there have been fewer stories told by family members. Um, but mine isn't the only one. Um, and Nick's book, too. Nick's book is, um, I don't know if anyone in here has read Nick's book. You said you did. It's, a, it's really, really, really brutal. It's so hard for me to read his book. He has a new book that's coming out that is... It's just so much more hopeful. Um, this book is really about living in hell. Um, he wrote half of it, and then he relapsed again and was trying to write while he was high and using on the streets because he needed the money. And um, he was anyway. The book is just almost unbearable. Well, it is. It was unbearable. I could, couldn't read more than a page without breaking down. Um, but I was really shocked that the publisher, his publisher, chose to publish it as a young adult book and to put on the cover that it's for you know, 15 and up or something like that. And when I, I, we, we all met together, and at one point I said, you know, what, what are you thinking? This book would, if I was 15 and I'd read this book, it would have just blown, my head would have just exploded. I mean, and they said, you know, this is a book for, in other words, anyway, the long-winded answer, um, that I think it's pretty, Nick's book is unique to deal with people his age. And the reason that I think it's been so impactful on kids from what I hear, is that a lot of his book, his book is not a drug memoir in that it says, you know, I use drugs, it was a mistake, now I'm in recovery, you know, I pray every day and life is great. He doesn't say that at all. What he talks about really is not about, what, it was, it's about why he used drugs, and it's something that I think a lot of people can relate to. Um, when Nick, I was with Nick at a school in Southern California, and it was a huge high school, and there were 2,000 people at a, um, in an auditorium, and Nick stopped talking, and it was, um, he talked about just being in high school and what hell he was in and how, uh, you know, he's super smart. So uh, he was able to convince me and his teachers and, you know, his mom and Karen, my wife, that everything was okay or pretty well, pretty okay. Uh, in the meantime, he was in hell, and he talked about this, and clearly it resonated with these kids. And as soon as he stopped talking, there was a girl who stood up and said, and this is, you know, a high school kid, a girl in front of 2,000 of her Peers said, um, my dad is a cocaine addict. 
he's been abusing me. I've started using cocaine, and I think I'm going to turn out just like him. And then she just started crying, and she lost it. And you know, from, her friends just came up and kind of grabbed her. And then another kid. So anyway, I guess the thing that's unique to me about Nick's book is that it's really not about drugs, but it's about why people use it. It's about how hard it is to grow up. Um, anyway. You said you're writing another book right now. Is it somehow connected to this? Well, the book that I, I was ready, when I, was, when I started writing this book, I was writing a, a very, when, when, I, when this happened to us, um, our family, I was working on a book completely different about architecture and Lego and building and Lincoln Logs and things like that. And this happened and, you know, I was completely swept up in this other world. Um, and my plan was to go back and to finish that book. But really because of the experience, our experience, but even more the people I've met, and sort of, you know, what you're describing, this sort of chaotic, unregulated, you know, really disastrous system out there. Um, I've I decided to put this other book on hold again and to try to go back and to try to figure out sort of what we know about drug use and addiction, what we don't know, what we know about treatment and what we don't know, at least so that we can start with some knowledge. And so I'm trying to gather information from researchers and from the experience of a lot of different people um, and to try to figure it out. It's, it's really hard because it's confusing. There's, a lot, there's more that we don't know than, what, than, than that we know. A follow-up to that with that answer. Um, you were saying that America is woefully behind the times in addressing this disease, um, but I wondered if there were other countries uh, in this world that are ahead of us and have raised hopes for types of treatment that would address a specific methamphetamine. Um, other countries are, most other countries are in worse shape than we are. Many of them are. Um, one of the good things about some countries is that their, their healthcare system pays for treatment of, a, of, of addicts. And our, our um, system, it's so, it depends on you know, your insurance. And if you don't have insurance, obviously you're really in trouble. Um, I, a woman in Pennsylvania, again, um, got her daughter into a program finally. Her daughter was suicidal on heroin and pills. Got her into a program, and of course that was just hell. Checked her in. She was approved for the initial stay, which I think was a 44-day thing. She got a call after a week um, from the program director or whatever and was told um, that the insurance had been reversed. They weren't going to pay. She had to come get her daughter. And she, what do you mean? I just, she can't come home. I'm sorry. So she went and got her daughter, brought her home, spent the night on the phone trying to find another place for her, went in to wake up her daughter in the morning. Her daughter was gone. She'd snuck out and she overdosed and died. Um, the, um, um, and the, you know, Canada has some, I, I guess, of what I've heard about Canada has some really interesting experiments going on, stuff that could never, ever happen here. Um, maybe a little bit less about treatment than just about the way that they handle drug use. Um, they have, for instance, I think three now, they call them safe injection sites, that um, are places you can go if you're a heroin addict, um, um, and shoot up with clean needles. They don't give you heroin, but they give you clean needles, and then you can stay there. Uh, and they have safe places for you to be while you're there. Um, as you can imagine, it was really controversial. There were a lot, in fact, um, who was it in the bush? I can't remember the guy's name. I'm, uh, I had a brain hemorrhage. I can't remember names at all anymore. But anyway, the guy who was the drug czar under Bush, you know, uh, Walters was his name. Um, you know, he just said that this was going to, this was murder, and it was, I mean, it was just this 
Um, but what they've done is they have made neighborhoods that were incredibly unsafe safer. Um, they've stopped overdoses because there's a, they're in a controlled environment, and they've stopped people from using um, bad needles, which means they've stopped. Hepat- uh, they've lowered the rates of hepatitis C and, and uh, AIDS. And in addition, and the part of it that is really, really hopeful, or at least a, another part of it that's really hopeful, is that because they have people staying there and it's a safe place for them to go, they have a, much, they have a very high success rate of getting people from there into treatment. Um, so, no, the, the best treatments that I know about are these comprehensive treatments that are unbelievably expensive in this country. Some of them are associated with some of the big universities, um, you know, in, in the East Coast and at UCLA and uh, at, at um, Yale has a, um, and Harvard has one at the McLean Hospital in Western Massachusetts. There's one at Austin Riggs, but they are, um, you know, it's it's the places where the it is acknowledged. That, that depending on the research, I've heard people tell me that 70 percent up to I've heard somebody tell me 90 percent of people who end up being addicts have another serious illness. They have depression or bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or um, borderline personality disorder, whatever it is. Um, and so a lot of times you send people into rehab and they detox them, and then they start to teach them 12 steps about, you know, you're powerless, you have to turn your life over to a higher power. In the meantime, they're not on drugs, and so whatever else they're cont- is contained in their body is coming out, and, you know, they're, they're 9 out of 10 people who go to treatment relapse um, in these hospitals that are more traditional hospitals, there is a recognition of the comorbidity factor, you know, addiction with whatever else it is. And they have the doctors who know how to diagnose and treat these things. Um, so, do we have a little more time? Or? I think one last question. Okay. Um, what's the title of your book? Nick's book is called Tweak, uh, which, um, and he's got a new book that, as I said, is a little bit, not a little bit, it's a lot more hopeful. It's, it's um, his next book after the, this one is, is, a, is a sort of part two, and it's called We All Fall Down, uh, and it's a memoir. Um, and his next one is going to be, uh, uh, he's writing a movie about zombies in rehab or something like that. So anyway, well, thank you so much for having me here. It's uh, a great place to be. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.